The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, I lived in New York City and Manhattan all my life, okay? So, you know, my views are a little bit different than if I lived in Iowa, perhaps. I am pro-choice in every respect and as far as it goes. I am pro-life. Everybody knows I'm pro-life. But you still, I just believe in choice. There has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah. I've been told by some people that was a older line answer. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who thinks the NATO treaty is more like a NATO suggestion, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So I'm back from Cleveland, where I was sitting in the arena last night during Trump's endless acceptance speech. I don't have a lot to add to what any number of people have already said and written about how ugly and unpleasant that speech was. It was totally outside the tradition of American political rhetoric which on that kind of occasion usually draws on history and religion and tries to look to the possibility of a brighter future for the country. This one was just an expression of grievance, hate, and blame. What being in the room added was something that I can only describe as a feeling of fascism. On stage, Trump is jutting his chin and pursing his lips like Mussolini as he declares himself the tribune of the people and the expression of their voice. I was sitting in the balcony amidst some Florida alternate delegates, and in the beginning, to be honest, they seemed bored and listless. But by the time Trump was done, the two beefy men next to me were standing and shouting and pumping their fists with the blood vessels bulging at their temples. Being in that room, you felt the racial dimension of what was going on really strongly. Remember that the room, unlike what you saw at the podium, was almost completely white. Fewer than 1% of the delegates were African-American, and there weren't many Latinos either. It was a hall filled with enraged white people cheering for the claim that darker people are to blame for crime, terrorism, and the murder of police. Oh, and that racial conflict and division are all the fault of our first black president. I haven't witnessed a bleaker scene since I've been watching American politics. Today on the show an interview with the man who ghost-wrote Trump's bestseller, The Art of the Deal. But first, let's do the tweets. Crooked Hillary Clinton is spending big Wall Street money on ads saying, I don't have foreign policy experience. Yet, look at what her policies have done. Very sad that a person who has made so many mistakes, crooked Hillary Clinton, can put out such false and vicious ads with her phony money. Wow. Ted Cruz got booed off the stage. Didn't honor the pledge. I saw his speech two hours earlier, but I let him speak anyway. No big deal. Other than a small group of people who have suffered massive and embarrassing losses, the party is very united. Great love in the arena. Ted Cruz talks about the Constitution, but doesn't say that if the Dems win the presidency, the new justices appointed will destroy us all. My guest today is Tony Schwartz, who ghostwrote The Art of the Deal, Donald Trump's number one bestseller, 
which was published almost 30 years ago. That book did more than anything else to create the Trump myth. Tony, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you so much. So how did this how did you end up collaborating with him? You were back then you were a journalist, right? Bizarrely. I wrote a piece for New York Magazine uh, in 1985 called The Cold War on Central Park South, another kind of Donald Trump story. And it was an incredibly critical piece about his attempts to vacate a building that he'd just bought of its rent control tenant so he could turn it into a luxury condominium and the ham-handed way that they tried to do that. And the picture of him on the cover was an illustration. He looked like a thug. He was sweating. He hadn't shaven. It was not an appealing portrait. He loved the piece. He loved the cover. He put it up on his wall and wrote me a fan note to tell me how great <laughs> the piece was. Did you, you, you can be a little sensitive ordinarily. Do you have any sense why he this kind of critical piece was something he liked? Because he hadn't been on many covers at that point, maybe none. And I think in his own perverse universe, he saw this as a positive story, perhaps for no other reason than he got so much attention. So how did this, you clearly have a, have a very negative view of Donald Trump now. I certainly do as well. Did this come out of working on the book with him, or is this something that has developed over the years since? From the beginning, in the piece that I wrote for New York Magazine, I recognized who he was. And when he, in a subsequent interview, told me that he was doing a book, and I spontaneously suggested the title Art of the Deal, and he came back and said to me, would you like to write it? You know, I was at a crossroads because, and you can appreciate this as a longtime journalist yourself, you know, I wasn't making much money. I had a second kid on the way. I was living in an apartment I couldn't afford in Manhattan. And suddenly there was uh, the prospect of making you know, five times what I ordinarily earned in a year for writing, you know, for the next year and, you know, potentially a bonanza if it succeeded. And I did it for the money. At the time, the rationalization I had was, you know, this doesn't matter. I'm going to do this for a year. I've got a long life ahead. And who the heck cares about this guy one way or the other? So if he's not somebody I admire, the reality is he's not going to make much of a difference in the world anyway. <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, you make it sound a little like Faust Part 3, but but really, you're a professional writer, and he's a real estate developer who hired you to write a book. I mean, many many have done uh, things uh, uh, no, absolutely. much worse. No, people but. write for money. Um, you know, it's as I look at back 30 years at it, I just realized, you know, when you make these decisions where you violate your own moral instincts, there's no statute of limitations on it. And, you know, it can come back to haunt you. But that, again, this isn't about me. Let's talk about him. Yeah, and, and talk a little bit, Tony, about what it was like working with him on the book. Did you, how did you, how did you do it? I mean, you know, I, I, I was a co-writer with someone on a book once, and, you know, there, there are various ways to collaborate on something like this. Well, originally I did it in the most traditional way you could imagine, which is I just went and tried to interview him. I mean, I, I should say I went and interviewed him, you know, repeatedly. The problem was, and again, critical to why I'm speaking out now, he had a stunningly short attention span, and we would get 10 or 15 minutes into any given interview, and he would get frustrated and impatient, and he would want to stop talking, and like, haven't you got enough, and I, I, I told you that, and it isn't interesting, and it's the past, and you know that went on for some number of weeks on Saturday mornings when I would go to do these interviews. 
And I finally ended up at Mar-a-Lago thinking I'd have him as a captive audience, uh, his home in Florida, for a weekend. And, you know, we got 10 minutes into the first interview, and he said, I've had enough. I just can't do this anymore. This just uh, this is impossible. And I literally, this is probably three months into signing a contract for this, went up to my room, and I called my agent, and I said, look, I'm not going to be able to do it. He just won't answer my questions, and he doesn't have the patience, and, you know, I'm giving up. And on the plane ride home, I had the sort of what turns out to have been kind of a mini inspiration, which is what if I just sat on the phone and listened to him all through the day because I'm writing a book about deals and that's what he's doing on the phone. So I can pick up from the other side some of the details of those deals and then I can go back and interview them. And in the end, I'll be able to write a book. So you got to just be a kind of so you were kind of a fly on the wall. I was the definition of a fly on the wall. You know, I I was sitting eight feet away from him, and I would listen in from nine in the morning, sometimes till five in the afternoon, and 98% of his life was uh, going from person to person on the phone. And did you, did part of you, did you kind of enjoy listening to him? Did any, any part of you kind of like him? I mean, what was your, what was your feeling about spending all that time with him back then? I've written about this. Uh, I mean, there's been, Uh, as you know, the New Yorker piece by Jane Mayer describing my experience. And I tell her that uh, I kept a journal during that period, which I was able to find in the course of doing this piece with Jane. And it reinforced what I thought was the case, which is that I was in something of of despair. I was in some despair over this. You know, I, I used words like numbing and deadening. And this is a man who stands for everything or against everything I believe. And so I think it was a difficult um, process for me, but I knew it would be over. And again, I didn't think it mattered very much. So I, I stuck with it. And the, the book was obviously, I mean, it's, it's the most successful thing Trump has published under his name. It's the book that still defines him it's more only, than anything else. Here, here's a really good thing for us to know. Let me put it on the record. It's the only successful book that he's written, I believe, successful relative to what he says. You know, he talks about the notion that he's had multiple bestsellers. Well, I don't know. Maybe they were somewhere on the bestseller list, but this was far and away the most successful book. And very shortly after it came out, his whole empire collapsed. Is is the book, do you think, when you look at it, factually accurate? And was did you think it was factually accurate when you were publishing it? Well, I did think it was, um, I did think I'd done my very best to try to make it accurate. I was well aware because through the interviews I did over and over, the people would say to me, listen, Tony, off the record, I'm not going to be critical of Donald, but you know, that description of the deal is not what actually happened. And he wasn't the center of that, or that number he gave you wasn't accurate. And, you know, my reaction was twofold. One, I said to myself, look, if I'm going to maintain my own integrity, what I'm going to have to do is sidestep as much of what I'm being told isn't true as I possibly can in the retelling of these deals. And then the second thing I did was I came up with this phrase, which seems so bizarre to me today, but it's been often quoted, truthful hyperbole. Of course, as you well know, there is no such thing. (laughs) Truth is truth and hyperbole is lying. doesn't matter that it's exaggeration. Exaggeration means you're saying something that isn't true, but it is a winning I mean, Jacob, it's a winning kind of phrase. It sounds ingenuous and kind of fun and, you know, hey, it's all in the, it's all 
for the fun of it. You know? Yeah, it's just, just storytelling, just pushing. Yeah, it's exactly, just making it a better story. So What's, just and, one other thing. I, I, I use that phrase to cover for those places in the book where I imagined that what he was saying probably wasn't quite true. Hmm. I couldn't say that for sure. And when I gave him the manuscript, he read it and approved it. So I felt that he was taking the stand. This is true. And they would say gray area where you didn't know it to be false. Oh, I absolutely, I absolutely did not put into the book a single word that I knew to be false. And Tony, why are you speaking out now? I mean, Trump started running for president, you know, well over a year ago. I mean, he's been, you know, in, in getting involved in politics, doing all sorts of other things. But, th- you know, almost 30 years later, you're coming to the fore with this story. What well, would you, would let, you... Let, let me be really clear. I never would have come out. I did not speak about him publicly for 29 years. And I had over those years, dozens of requests for various reasons as he became more and more famous. Yeah. I chose not to because I never signed a non-disclosure agreement with him, but I understood the implicit notion that I had done this with the expectation of confidence from him, yes. that I would keep his confidence. And the idea of breaking that was painful to me and a source of great ambivalence. And indeed, it was only when I thought he might become president that I felt there was a higher calling at play, that I had a kind of moral or civic obligation to say what I knew. And I believed that what I knew was that everything about this man suggested that it would be a danger to the country, indeed to the world, for him to be elected president. It's like if you were suffering from cancer in some part of your brain, would it ever be conceivable that you would have a surgeon or somebody calling himself a surgeon who had no training as a doctor or a surgeon? Of course not. That's preposterous. It wouldn't even be considered. But we don't have a comparable way of vetting the qualifications for president. So along comes this guy who has the equivalent of no medical degree and no residency in surgery trying to do brain surgery. That is a terrifying thought. The, the quote that really jumped out in the piece you uh, did speaking to Jane Mayer was that if Trump gets his hands on the nuclear codes, we risk the end of civilization. I mean, you really feel that way. Well, and it sounds hyperbolic and it sounds like, oh, my God, I'm you know, sort of acting like Trump and overstating it in the, in the name of you know, riling, people, riling up people and getting their fear about this. No, this is my honest-to-God assessment. This is a man who, in my experience, over and over again, when he felt devalued or when he felt criticized, and he often felt that way, struck back and struck back hard and did it emotionally. He did not think first. He did not imagine the consequences. He just reacted. Now you translate that into the White House and you put him on the world stage up against a Vladimir Putin who's three times the IQ of Donald Trump is my guess. And Putin realizes how to push down this guy, how to humiliate him, or he doesn't even think about it, but Trump feels humiliated and he's carrying around the nuclear codes. You know that the nuclear codes are carried around by military men and they pass it off from one service to the next. It goes from the Navy to the Air Force, to the Army as the president moves. And the president has almost complete discretion over pushing that button. 
In other words, there's no congressional approval required. There's no process. We leave this to the president of the United States. That is insane to do with Donald Trump. <laughs> it sounded like what you based on what you said a minute ago, you think Trump is actually not all that smart. Is that a lot yeah, of people? I, I think yeah. Trump isn't all that smart, but let me be more specific about it. Go back to what I said just a few moments ago about his attention span. So here's a guy with an, even when I, he's asked to talk about himself, which is far and away his favorite subject. In fact, maybe his only, <laughs> the subject, only subject, he is incapable of maintaining attention for more than a few minutes. Now we put that guy into the White House, and what's the consequence of the fact that he couldn't pay attention? It's that he doesn't know anything. It takes time to be able to absorb information and make sense of it. And John, Donald Trump, it appears now, even by his own admission, but I have been saying this before I saw it written up in the Washington Post, I would have said he has never read a book in his adult life other than those written for him. Now, I was on a program with Michael Moore the other night, and he said, well, hey, that's just true of many Americans. Well, yeah, but they're not running for president. <laughs> they're not in a position of having to make incredibly complex, nuanced, difficult decisions, and he will be. So the simple idea that he doesn't have an attention span means, by definition, his IQ is almost irrelevant, because an, a great IQ without any knowledge is just a number. So... Tony, tell me what's happened since you, this piece came out. How has Trump responded to it? Well, I'd say two things since it came out. The, the one that didn't surprise me is that 24 hours after it appeared, there was a letter at my door, uh, a cease and desist letter from Trump's central lawyer, his in-house lawyer, suggesting that I uh, return all royalties over the last 30 years, that I never say anything defamatory, as he suggested I had, about him again, and that I, I cease saying anything at all about him. But based on what, you'd, you'd never signed a non-disclosure agreement, you said? No, and it wasn't, there was no reference to non-disclosure. It was, you're defaming Donald Trump, and you're saying things that aren't true, so you should stop. And why, should, why did he say you should give the money back that you weren't doing this 30 years ago? Having a rational basis or a true legal case has never, <laughs> in my experience, seemed to be an impediment to Donald Trump filing suit. You're right. You know, wrong question. USA sorry. Sorry. 2,500 pending suits. So I expected to be one of those suits. Here, here's the interesting thing, Jacob. I have gotten I, you know, thousands and thousands of emails, texts, tweets, all this kind of you know, response from largely from people I don't know. And the split between this between positive and negative is, is really probably about ninety-five five positive. And many, many of those people have offered to contribute to a defense fund if he should go ahead and sue. And that to me is evidence that I did the right thing because I you know, listen, if it were just me, he could if he prolonged it long enough, he could clearly bankrupt me. I don't you know. I've long since spent what I earned from the art of the deal, so that's gone. And I don't, I haven't built a fortune like Donald Trump. So that's his tactic almost all the time. It makes me feel there's a deep, deep well of uh, fear around Donald Trump that reinforces my decision to do this. Because, you know, speaking of the NDAs, he has successfully muzzled over the last 25 years as he realized he should get people to sign NDAs and has done so, every person 
that I'm aware of who really knows who he is and could say something. And I do feel that I am the only person right now who has a real basis for saying this is factually what I observed, who is actually doing that. And so that feels very important to me. Tony Schwartz ghost wrote Donald Trump's book, The Art of the Deal. Tony, thanks for joining me on today's show. Thank you. That's it for today's show. I hope my producer, Jason DeLeon, never declares that I only sound good because of him, even though it's true. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. He ain't afraid of no ghosts. He's only afraid of our chief content officer, Andy Bowers. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. As the days and weeks go by, we see what a total mess our country and world is in. Crooked Hillary Clinton led Obama into bad decisions.